or All right. question? Well, I have a few questions. Maybe I'll save some for later. Um, but I was wondering, so wholesome thoughts are related to sukha. Are wholesome thoughts always related to the present moment? Or can we have sukha about the past? No, do, almost always the dukkha is about the past. Okay. That in fact, dwelling on the past uh, is referred to as the hindrance. And, and there are, there are, is a actual a block or a group of suttas that have the same references. Number 131, 132, 133, 134 in the, in the Majjhima Nikaya. And that um, Bhikkhu Bodhi's uh, title for number 131 is One Fortunate Attachment, which is a good way of looking at it because in Western Buddhism, people have this idea that you shouldn't attach to anything. But in fact, the Buddha talks about four modes of clinging that bring on the four woeful states that is actual dukkha. But that not all attachment is brings on dukkha. And the one attachment that we're talking about, the one fortunate attachment, can be basically said today or right now. In fact, the Buddha didn't have a clock, so they didn't even think of things in hours. But so when they're talking about today or tonight, they mean just right now. This is it. And that this is one fortunate attachment. So we could say that, in fact, wholesome thoughts that are happening in the present moment about what's real in the present moment is often not suffering. An example of that is uh, we we can get injured. I have I've been I've been injured. <laughs> I've been injured. <laughs> what with road, motorcycle racing and and uh, 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 um, uh, karate gojurai, I've had some broken bones and things like that and 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 others. And it started when I was a kid. But so I know about the sequence that the point of time when you're injured is, uh, and, and the few seconds after that, the body is generally in shock and we're not in pain. And that the pain comes later, very good example of that. The auto mechanic is under the car working on it. He's got his hands greasy. He uh, is struggling with that wrench that he can't quite see, but he can feel his way around it. And then he strikes his knuckle and, and, and opens and busts the knuckle. But he's busy on the car. So he continues right on with the car. After he finishes what he's doing, he may in fact look at the knuckle, or he takes it into the, uh, his hands into the house and, to wash them. And while he's washing his hands, that's when it starts hurting. The pain comes later, and normally the pain has to do with thoughts of, look what I've done, or this is bad, and we start to have bad thoughts about the feelings, and then that, that's when the feelings get really strong. Mm -hmm. 
okay? But if we can take our mind and focus it on anything else, now this auto mechanic, and what I'm talking about has happened a, a million times in the past 30 years in the United States. Uh, over and over and over again, that people will get injured and don't pay attention to it until later. And that's when the pain starts. So imagine now that you've got your arm in a cast from a broken arm, broken bone, and now the arm will hurt, but it'll hurt for two reasons. One is that it hurts because it's healing, and that's a good kind of hurt. And the other kind of hurt that it has is when you move it out of the position that it likes towards healing. In other words, don't go there. Don't bend the hand in that direction because it unsets the bone. Okay? And so now pain is a teacher. Pain is actually the, the teacher and that the sensations need to be strong enough to really get the mind's attention. But we don't have to suffer because we've been injured. But that's one of the ways of saying it, it, that I've seen dogs get really injured. I've seen dogs get put down because they were injured. But they didn't suffer while they were injured. Lucky guy, I don't know what happened to her, but this happened when she was a pup. And um, it looks like that she got her leg caught in the chain of a motorbike. It was really, really nasty. Yeah. But she laid under the chair, and she limped around for a few days, but she was loving and happy, and she licked, and everything was cool. And now she's fine. She let the healing process happen naturally. Us humans, we get worried about our injuries and start picking at it. Okay, so we actually create most of the suffering that we have. Now, I know that your question had to back to do with the here now, but always the injuries happen in the here now. But the pain from the injury is often later in the past where the injury is over. All right. Um, an example of that is a brand new infant. That if that brand new infant, I'm talking about a babe that's only a couple of three days old. If, if that hand touches a hot coal or their foot touches a hot coal, the hand will immediately withdraw before the baby even recognizes what pain is and then tears up and lets out a yell. That's three to five seconds later, but the hand's already been taken away from that hot coal. Okay, so we have to understand that often the stuff that's happening in the here now is just happening. It's our attitudes about it later that cause all the suffering. Another example of that is, is that somebody uh, gets angry and hits someone, and that person who gets hit, he says, okay, I'm all right. But then three or four people rush around him and say, oh, that looks really bad. Oh, we got to go to the doctor. And so he's actually talked into being miserable and unhappy by other people, where in fact the actual injury itself was no big deal. And he knew that, but he was talked into being, feeling bad about it. 
So this is another possibility that we actually do get influenced. Now, oftentimes, we talk ourselves into the feeling bad. We don't need a crowd of people around us telling us how bad that looks. We tell ourselves that based upon our old past history. So that's so the past will actually come in and cloud the present moment so that we feel bad now based upon not just what happened right now, but just what happened right now plus our old past is brought into it. This is actually the teaching that I'm giving you now is the teaching that is taught, referred to in Buddha's uh, uh, terminology as Paticca Samuppada. Paticca Samuppada is a great um, elongation or detailed definition of the second noble truth. And it's got 12 steps in it. And that along that way, it shows how all of the stuff that we've accumulated from the past, which is the Pali word of Sankara, actually clouds our uh, perception of this present moment so that what we actually see and feel and experience is not reality because it's been um let us say um made impure by the past so actually a lot of pain that we have and not in, in the intense not liking of the pain is just a memory that we break up bring bring up and put on full display of the mind when something very small happens in the present moment, people will drag a really big one, put it together, and now they've got a, a big deal in the present moment, where in fact the real present moment was not a big deal at all. You see people do that on a regular basis. They've even got words for it. It's called hysterical. That people are, you know, they're overly reacting to the situation in the moment. Well, guess what? We all do that. And we do it all the time. We always overreact to the present moment. And, but, and so that overreaction that is done, it might appear then that this, this present moment, this is suffering, what's happening right now is suffering. But probably not so much. It's probably being influenced by the past. And so things begin to feel bad now because we remember how bad things used to be in certain situations. And so when that situation comes up, I'm supposed to feel the way that I did when I was a little child. Okay. So in that respect, you could see that the little child, when, they, when they're learning to walk, they file down often and, and quite often they cry. Or they cry when they don't get what they want children have temper tantrums. Okay, well, when we grow up, we have kind of a micro tantrum when we don't get what we want. <laughs> yeah. And so this micro tantrum of not getting what we want, that's actually on, in the formal list of dukkha. That in some of the um, uh, suttas, the Buddha actually gives a list of this is dukkha. And in doing so, he breaks it into three groups and that under, helps us to understand 
the the depth and the breadth of it because I've seen some meditation students say, oh, this is dukkha, and the other ones say, oh, no, that's dukkha, and you're wrong, and no, no, those ties are wrong, this is dukkha. The answer is actually all of those things are dukkha. Okay? There is actually a physical kind of dukkha in the sense that the laptop or the computer that you're working on or the cell phone that you've got right now is going to fail someday. It's going to break. It's got dukkha built into it. It's going to change and someday it's going to change to the point that it's not going to boot up for some reason or another. That's just how it goes. That's dukkha. It's built into it. Nothing is perfect. That's the imperfection. Or in this regard, they call it uh, the trilokana, which means the nicha dukkha anatta, which means anything that's subject to change will eventually change to the state that is no longer recognizable or no longer the same thing. It dies. And so death is the number one item of dukkha things die and then he quickly follows it with old age and sickness because when we get sick we don't like it when we get old we don't like it and when and both getting sick and old is getting closer to death now here's the point though a lot of people don't quite understand and that is getting sick is good getting old is good if you get old, that's good because that means you're postponing your death. If you don't get old, there's only one thing that can happen other than getting old, and that is dying young. And so getting old is a really good thing. At least you're still alive. <laughs> but we still list it as old age, sickness, and death, and these are the big physical things. And in fact, that's what happens to laptops. More than likely, the laptop is no longer in service because it's got old, not because it got sick or died. In other words, I've got a, an Acer that's about 15 years old. It still functions fine, but it's oh, and I don't want to use it. <laughs> but it's just as fine, it's just as fast as it was when it was new. But now it's old because it's not that the laptop has changed it's that it's been replaced by higher speed equipment in the minds of the users so there's many many different ways of looking at getting old and so if someone keeps saying the same thing we think of that is well this conversation is getting old we've had enough of it okay so Old age, sickness, and death. The next group is the way that we express it. And that is lamentation, uh, crying, uh, um, becoming mortified. This is the, uh, the definitions that, uh, you know, grief, becoming grief-stricken. So we get really emotional. And that's also a form of suffering. And we can see people like that, that when people are actually really angry or really in pain, emotional pain, that's real suffering. But where does that come from? The third kind of dukkha then is the stuff that we're really working with now, 
And the first item on the list is wanting things we don't have. That's the big one. Wanting things that we don't have. Because all kinds of stuff will happen with that. One of the things that can happen is, is that I was good when I had that laptop. Now that this laptop is broken, I want a new laptop and I'm not whole or good. My time is not worth anything. I need the laptop in order to be me. That's the key. I want something because I'm not good enough without it. But when we recognize, wait a minute, I'm good. I am not the laptop. I am not the laptop. I am not the car that broke. When we recognize that we can disassociate from ourselves, the laptop died, but I didn't die. Now we can also begin to disassociate or cut up things that are not just always on the outside, but also on the inside. An example of that would uh, wanting to become enlightened. So many people do so much suffering, calling it meditation, because they want something. They want to feel better than they do, so they sit there feeling bad, thinking that if they feel bad long enough, they'll start to feel good. That's a real head scratcher. <laughs> but that's, <laughs> that's the way that a lot of people are practicing, because they want something. The whole way of turning our practice around is, is to stop wanting something and start enjoying what we have right now because I'm good enough. The Zen will often teach uh, that you're already enlightened, which means you don't have to strive and work to become enlightened. All you have to do is relax because you're already there. If you will relax, you can experience that you're already there. But when we're wanting something, then we're, we're wanting things that uh, come from the conclusion that I'm not whole or I'm not good enough or we become in that victim's position that I can't do without it. And yet I here I am without it. But the winner's position, the right attitude is I can't do without it. I'm good to go. I'm fine without that laptop. So now we can go about doing the things we need to do, including perhaps getting a new laptop, but we can do it with joy rather than frustration because I need that laptop, okay? Nobody needs a laptop. If we can now separate that laptop from me. We can begin to separate me from the feelings also. In the sense, when people are angry, they say, I am angry. No, there is anger there, but you are not the anger. Or there is sadness there, but you are not the sadness. Or you're, you're feeling guilty about whatever. Well, you are not the guilt. So one of the students um, had, uh, let us say, a concept that I find quite useful for students. He, he said, everyone is an emperor of their own pile of dirt. 
Everyone's an emperor of their own pile of dirt. Only most people are buried under their pile of dirt. The emperor is part of the mix. What we're happening, what we're doing here is by separating ourselves out, I am not the laptop or I am not the anger, that means that we can now rise above it. The Pali word is lokatara, which means the supramundane. And basically the image is sitting on top of your own world, sitting on top of your own pile of dirt to learn to live on top of your world. You do not have to get into the past. The past, in fact, that you're emperor of your own pile of dirt. What is that pile of dirt? It's your past. It's your past. <laughs> the dirt itself is, in fact, uh, so old, but originally it was just a pile of shit. And who made this shit? Well, we did. <laughs> So why should we wallow in it? Why not come out of it, take a bath, and then sit on top? This is the this is the image to give, is, is that you are not those bad feelings. You are not that memory. Not sure what you are yet. We'll get into that when we get into the Petitia Savopada. But right now, we can say that I am not the laptop whether it's functioning or it's dead. I am not the anger, whether it's there or not there. I am not the anger. When anger comes, it needs to be dealt with. But most people, when they become angry, the anger takes control. The I is controlled by the anger. In other words, we're a victim. But if we can get on top of that, what that means is, aha, I see you, anger. And by doing so, we disassociate ourselves from it. Well, on a big deal like that, we can also disassociate ourselves from each one of these thoughts, that you are not the thought that you're thinking. An example of that would be that clouds gather around. Sometimes the clouds are here and there, and then there are clouds that, that say gather around a mountain. But that mountain does not own those clouds. Now you can think of the mind and the mind's content. The mind is the mountain, but the content is merely the clouds. The mind does not own those thoughts. You don't own those thoughts. They're just clouds in the air, and they just, you know, form and change, and they're inconstant, in flux. If that's true, then it we could say then the thought is actually uh, becoming owned if we have any control over it. So long as there's absolutely no control, then of course the thought is not me other than the thought owns me. I think, in fact, I'm confused that I am the thought rather than the thought is there, but I am not the thought. So this is part of Vanapanasati is to wake up, to start investigating and seeing the mind and noticing that the thoughts or the contents of the mind are not the mind itself, nor is it you. So when people go around trying to define who they are, they do it with the thought form. I'm a baker. I'm a candlestick maker. 
I'm a programmer. I'm a preacher. But any one of those people are not those things, even though they spend maybe some time doing it. In fact, the baker may claim that he's a baker. I'm a baker, and he spent years in a bakery, but now he's in prison. But in prison, he still thinks himself as a baker because of his own mentality, his own attachment to it. But in fact, he would probably be much healthier and happier if when he left the bakery and went home to be with his kids, and now he's a daddy. He's not a baker. That we move from things to things while you're holding that um, viola and playing the viola, you're a musician. When the viola is in the case, you're not a musician. Whatever you're doing, and so not only that, but what we're actually doing also doesn't define us. If when we're not doing that also doesn't define us, then how can we find a definition of who we are? The answer to that is, that we're actually in flux. We're a process. We're constantly changing. And that the labels that we put on all of these changes don't sit there long enough to be really useful. For instance, if the baker is sitting in the bakery do, doing the receipts and counting up the money from the day, at that point in time, he's not a baker. Now he's a money counter, but he doesn't see himself as the money counter because he doesn't do that often. Okay, so now we're beginning to understand that who we are really does depend upon what's happening in the present moment, but that even the present moment doesn't define who we are. And also, your question that you ask is, does the dukkha come out of the present moment? The general answer to that is no. Not the reality of the present moment, but that we can color or flavor this present moment with our own past. And that that's where the dukkha comes from, is the fact that we're capable of doing this. So, what the Buddha recommends is, is that um, we spend our time basically in the present moment, but reflecting it in the sense of the way that the Buddha's teachings work. In other words, we have a mindset or we have the mentality of Dukkha Naroda a lot, often. We're looking for it. We're out on the, the, uh, the search. Dukkha. Is this Dukkha? Is this Dukkha? Is that Dukkha? You know, so this is the way that we begin to do it. And when we uh, have that kind of mentality, that's when the eagerness starts to grow. When we really do say, hey, the only way I'm going to get my life straightened out is by seeing the dukkha and getting, you know, and sidestepping it or getting out of its way. Once I've got that mentality, now we become kind of dedicated to doing that or that the eagerness grows. And as our eagerness grows, we really do want to come out of suffering. That means that we're actually quite willing to see the wrongdoing that we have, both out in the world that other people can see our wrongdoing, 
but also we can see the wrongdoing in our own mind because we can see that that's causing us unhappiness, ill will. Then, in fact, to um, uh, to bring the thread back together, that classical definition of uh, dukkha being old age, sickness, and death, and then lamentation, grief, despair. The next group is uh, wanting things we don't have, and then the next one is having to put up with things that are difficult to endure, things we don't like. When the child is having a tantrum, mom doesn't like that kid having a tantrum, especially in the grocery aisle of the grocery store. Or in the the uh, uh, the candy aisle or the uh, sugar pop uh, cereal aisle. <laughs> so uh, when something happens, we don't like it. That's a form of suffering, but it is actually more of leading into suffering. You know, or let us say, it's the cause, or it's the. Um, let's say we're driving down the road. And we have a flat tire. And we look and we find out that the flat tire is a nail. Okay. So wanting things that we don't have and having to put up with things we don't want to put up with is the nail. And then the lamentation, grief, and despair comes when the guy gets out of the car <laughs> and sees that he's got a flat tire or he recognizes it before he stops the car even. Uh, so um, the, the little things is actually the, the root cause. But we can go actually a little bit deeper into that. Why do we want things? And the answer to that is, is because of something even deeper than that, and that would be fear, that the bottom, bottom line is fear, and almost all of human activity is designed around coming out of danger into safety. Most wars are started because the other crowd is dangerous, and we got to do something about them before they do it to us. All wars are started that way because of the feeling of danger. In other words, even if the king wants the gold that the other king has, he's jealous because he says, I'm a king, but I'm not a good enough king because that guy's got more gold than I do. And so you can see that at the bottom of all of that is fear whether we're talking about fighting over a mountain of gold or whether we're talking about just taking the last breath. It's all the same. We are fear-driven, and that the drive for that fear is called the self-preservation instinct. In other words, the number one thing that we have going for us is to keep us alive. It's a survival instinct, and it's instinctual, built right into our DNA. And it controls our lives. But it doesn't have to. When we're asleep, like animals, the um, all animals, in fact plants also, have a self-preservation instinct. Some of them uh, in the genes show that uh, some bushes are thorns, thorny bushes. Rose bushes have thorns on them. Why is that? 
the thorns are for protection. And so we do a lot of our stuff. One of the things that we do is we make a lot of rules. Thou shalt not kill. Why? Because I don't want you to kill me. I'm afraid to die. And so we have all of our rules. But if you look at it this way, the, the very, very first thing that the human did that made the human different than other animals was that he picked up something and carried it away with him. This could have been one of two things, generally thinking. And that is that he picked up a stick that was on fire on the other end of it so that he could hold it without burning himself and he carried that stick away. They, they understand now that something happened and fire spread throughout humanity within a very short period of time. It looks like it had happened about 600,000 years ago. As soon as one person was able to control fire, it spread throughout all of human civilization. Did you know that? That's what happened. It, everybody wanted it. It was so good. So this is what makes us different from animals is because we can pick up things and hold it and use it as a weapon for protection. Here's another possibility, and that is, is that uh, the humans would get marrow out of the bones of the carcasses that the big animals left. Lions, hyenas, etc., like that, didn't finish it off. There was a lot of marrow. The humans were smart enough to take a bone and crack that open. But that wasn't too much smart, because now we've seen sea otters go and get um, uh, clams and a stone, and then they come to the surface and swim on their back and put that clam on their stomach and then hit it with a rock to beat it open. So maybe we learned it from the otters. <laughs> so this is otter behavior that we're talking about. And the human did something new. The otter, when he's finishing breaking that clam open, he drops the rock. The human decided that this rock was really good at breaking these bones open. And I'll keep it. Fast forward a little while, and now he's uh, uh, wrapped a stick around it, or uh, tied a stick to it, and now he's got a hand axe. And now he's got something to protect himself, okay? So our first instinct is for protection, and so our materialism is all based in that quality of protection. And so now everyone is carrying around that stone tied to a stick. You've got one in your pocket. It's called a cell phone. Mm -hmm. And it's there for protection. I've mm -hmm. even seen people say, oh, I don't mind going into that store because I've got my cell phone with me and I know that I can call 911. Well, that's no protection at all. If she's going into that kind of dangerous place, that guy may grab that cell phone immediately. <laughs> you know, give me your cell phone and then we'll walk and talk. <laughs> and so the cell phones are really not as secure uh, as we would think they are, but it gives us the feeling of security. So... If that's the case, then that means that I can uh, imagine, because the cell phone is going to give me security, that I can imagine 
that there is no danger that I need security from. And you've got the same thing, that we learn to control our feelings directly because we recognize that I am not that fear. But that's just an instinctual behavior. So um, a lot of people in Buddhism, based upon the way that it's written in the sutras and things like that, they get the idea that they're going to, okay, that we're going to destroy the self-preservation instincts. And the answer is no on two counts. One, you can't. And number, without destroying the human being, that the instinct will only die after death. The second one is, is that it would be extraordinarily dangerous for most people if they could destroy the self-preservation instinct. That basically what we're going to be doing is we're going to be making friends with it. And control it. Make it a pet. Okay, so the example that I would use is the, dogging, uh, the, the barking dog. Because I've got barking dogs here. If the dog goes out in the yard to bark, my job is going to look to see why the dog is barking. The dog sees me as the, as the, uh, the alpha, and if I start barking too, then, <laughs> the give, that, then it gives all the dogs permission to go do it. But if I call them back, sometimes it takes a couple of times. Normally just one word from me is enough to get uh, Lucky stopped. And Lucky's the one who always starts it. <laughs> so... Um, the point is, is that when I can call her to come back, to, as soon as she stops barking and turns around and starts to come, that's when I uh, change my voice completely. Come on, Lucky, come on. Yeah, here you go, Lucky. Good dog, good dog. Then she'll come right up. I can pet her, but this is basically the equivalent of downboying. Downboy. We can do that with our own mind also, that when the fear comes, we can look at the situation, look at it from wisdom, recognize there's no reason to feel afraid, and then we can take a deep breath and say, down boy, down boy, no need to become afraid. If people could do that, then um, there would be a much easier lifestyle for many people. Let me ask you a question. Uh, um, boy. I think his name is George Floyd, a black man who was recently killed by the police, and this is the cause of all of the riots and everything. Do you know who I'm talking about? Recently, like in the past day or two, there has been a, a webcam video from one of the police that showed the original scene of where they tapped on his window. And he was immediately afraid of the police. He actually caused his own death because he was afraid of the police. Please don't hurt me. Please don't shoot me. I'll do anything you say. And he was just barking and talking and so afraid that he could not follow the directions or listen to the, what the police were saying or anything like that. So you can see that, in fact, his survival instinct killed him. Freaking out is not what you want to do when you're around police because they attack. They're trained to attack 
freaking out. So if you're stopped by the police, keep your wits together. Listen closely. Listen carefully. Uh, go along with what they say and do so friendly. Because if we respond instinctually, then we're not thinking very well. That's really an amazing point that when we're afraid, we don't think straight. Many examples of that in, in uh, places, um, oh, I've got a lot of examples in, uh, um, how to say it, in debate. They have the quality that you can't use ad hominem attacks because if you attack your opponent, then that will put him on the defensive because he's feeling danger, and therefore that will mess up his um, debate. So that's why ad hominem attacks are not allowed in debates. Is it okay? Another example is, uh, and you see this exploited uh, grossly in in uh, uh, professional wrestling. But the idea before a fight is that if you can get your opponent angry, then then because he's angry, he will not be so careful and watch what he's doing. He's easier to defeat. A really clear example of that is the uh, uh, world championship. This is so favorite. I talk about this a lot to my students. The world championship in 1972 was Boris Spassky against Bobby Fischer. Bobby Fischer was an excellent chess player, but he was not world-class like Spassky. But Bobby Fischer won that tournament anyway. Why? Because he used a whole lot of psychological warfare things that Spassky was not interested in or didn't know anything about. Spassky was trained in Russia, and when you're playing chess in Russia, you're only playing chess. But Bobby Fischer would do weird things. Like he would be late, or he—it uh, was his turn to move, and he would not even be in his chair. The best one I think was that he would get up out of his chair and go beyond behind Spassky and stand there looking over his shoulder, making him intimidated and afraid. Okay, this is exactly what Donald Trump did to um, uh, Hillary Clinton. In the debates, he literally stalked her when she was holding the microphone and walking around the stage. There, Donald Trump was stalking her right behind her, and that would that you know kept because now she's thinking about two things. She's thinking about this villain behind her as well as trying to think about what she's doing. Okay, so this is the kind of an indication that our feelings mess up our thinking. That the that feelings control our thoughts, sometimes in in uh, uh, unwholesome ways. And so, by becoming more aware of our thoughts, we also become more aware of our feelings. And so, this is the practice that we're doing: is to keep waking up and waking up and waking up, so that we can see what's going on and recognize in that moment that. The kind of thoughts that I'm having are the kinds of thoughts that I would have if I'm in a bad mood. And guess what? I'm in a bad mood. <laughs> and so I should 
deal with that directly. And most people, when they go through these thought uh, mood sequences, they're not aware of it at all, which means they just continue to do it. And now that's the habit of their of their life. So we have to change that habit by um, becoming by raising sati. In English, we would say becoming mindful or to watch, watch what's going on. So this is an important point to, to see that these thoughts of these clouds that come through the air is probably because of some heat from the emotions. And so we become more sophisticated in knowing how we feel because we can, in fact, control the feelings. But the first thing that we learn to control is the breathing, because that's key. In fact, if we can control the breathing, then we can eventually control the feelings with it. Once we learn to control the breathing so that we've got sati on every in-breath and sati on every out-breath, so that we know that this is a long in-breath and we know that this is a long out-breath, that leaves us plenty of time then to see what the mind is doing as well as we can begin to focus it. So back to that question of what we're doing right now, we could say, is this dukkha? Is what I'm doing right now dukkha? So in fact, we're looking at the Four Noble Truths, but we're not looking at the Four Noble Truths in the sense of some uh, article in a magazine or some test to take but rather we're practicing by applying the Four Noble Truths to this present moment. Is this dukkha? What is the cause of this dukkha? Or is this freedom from dukkha? Or in the sense of the method or the path, the method is these four skills that need to be developed. So am I developing these skills right now? Am I developing psyche? Am I developing right effort? Am I developing the right attitude? And so this is the investigation that we want to make as often as possible, which is, in fact, paying attention to the Four Noble Truths in this present moment. That's a, and that there's actually a promise. What I'm talking about now is in the sutta number two called the Saba Asaba Sutta. And in Bhikkhu Bodhi's uh, version, he's got uh, verse numbers. And so this is verse number 11 in in uh, that sutta that's talking about what's worthy of paying attention to. And the Buddha was saying that the past is not worth paying attention to, the future is not worth paying attention to or even who am I right now is not worth paying attention to. But what is worth paying attention to? What, in the, in the way of looking at it, what is worth paying attention to means that it's wholesome, taking us in the right direction, and those thoughts that are unwholesome would be taking us in the wrong direction. So now we're beginning to say, okay, what is worthy of us looking at what's worthy of our investigation what's worthy of our paying attention to the answer to that is the four noble truths right now in this present moment is there any greed in me do i want something i don't have is there any ill will do i have to put up with something 
that I don't want to put up with. And I make that inventory and they say, yes, right now there's a, a mosquito itch on the left knee. There's also another mosquito itch right here. And they're both uh, making noise about it. But they're not a big deal. But yes, there is some, I don't like it, I don't want it in there. So this is the whole quality. We begin to look at what's really going on in reflection of the uh, before noble truths. So in that regard, what, th what thoughts are wholesome and what thoughts are not wholesome? So we begin to start monitoring that. We start looking at that. When do we do that? Every time we remember to do that. <laughs> Every time we can remember to take a look at what the mind is doing to know what the thoughts are and to make a choice. Are these thoughts worth having or not? That's the key. If these thoughts are worth having, then that's great, because you might in fact wake up and recognize that the thoughts you're having are marvelous. But generally when we wake up, we wake up to recognize, oh no, I'm just thinking about some work that needs to be done, or something that was uncompleted, or... Um, something in the past like that and so generally it's best to change once we wake wake up and recognize that the thoughts that we're having are not wholesome we need to change it to being wholesome thoughts this is where right effort comes in so waking up taking a look making a judgment recognizing yeah that one's good we're good and the other one is nope that one's out throw it out get it off of our assembly line, and put a thought in place that's worthwhile having. And the mind is, think of the mind as like a conveyor belt. And that we as a worker on this conveyor belt are only interested in what's on the conveyor belt right in front of us. Because we can't be concerned with what's up there and way down there. So now the thought moment is like this conveyor belt, and a thought can be on that conveyor belt, but then the next thought on the conveyor belt would be, aha, uh -huh, I see you unwholesome thought, and now that's a new thought. Mm -hmm. And then the next thought is, I'm glad I don't have to think about that anymore, and I can just relax. Okay, so now we've changed it from unwholesome thoughts to wholesome thoughts, because this conveyor belt of time, the mind moment, is constantly moving. And one thought does not stay in the mind, but it will come back over and over and over again. But when we catch that, then we can stop it. So this is how we begin to control the mind. We learn to control it by controlling the breath. Can I sit here and take a deep in-breath and an out-breath and an in-breath and an out-breath? And now can I keep my mind focused on that in-breath and the out-breath rather than having it wander away? When we do this, we begin to get some success. This is where right attitude really kicks in, is when we know that we can, in fact, control the mind, and that, in fact, we can, because we're getting experience at it, controlling the thoughts, and throwing those um, unwholesome thoughts out, throwing the hindrances out, that's marvelous. If you think about it like this, 
the hindrances or negative thoughts is the only problem that anyone ever has. Those are the only problems that anyone ever has is their own negative thinking. And look how few people in the world are able to train their mind to have wholesome thoughts. Very, very few. So if you're learning to control the mind so that you have only wholesome thoughts and not wholesome thoughts, that is absolutely remarkable. There are fewer people on planet Earth that can do that than there are people who have won gold medals at racing events and the Olympics and all of that kind of stuff. There's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people who have gotten gold medals. And every time that person gets the gold medal, how do they feel? How would you feel if you got a gold medal? I see that big smile. I know. <laughs> I see that, that grin. Okay. So if you can get a gold medal and feel the win, feel the championship, feel the I did it kind of feeling with a gold medal, we can develop those same kind of feelings because we can, in fact, get a bigger gold medal by learning to control the mind. That's marvelous. Give yourself credit for it. You are practicing something that very, very few people know how to practice and attain. This is what the Buddha calls noble, to have a noble mind, a mind that's free from uh, the hindrances, a mind that's um, what they call taint-free which actually means free from hindrances, free from ill will, free from desire, free from wanting things, always using wisdom, okay? This is attainable. I know I've met many, many people like this here in Thailand, not so many in the West, because nobody's practicing much correctly there. But in, in Asia, yes, this is attainable. People can clean out their minds, clean the junk out, and practice correctly so that they can um, go into this noble state of being. Now, when I use the word noble, um, there's other words that we have in English that can help understand that. One would be honorable. Now, the word honorable is often misused in the sense that every judge and every politician is called honorable. Many of them are not. If they were doing their jobs properly, they could be using the title of honorable. The honorable judge is the one who is going to honor the law. Okay, so um, another word that we could use would be statesman, because the statesman is generally above the politics. He's only interested in the best welfare for other people. So this is the quality of noble. The quality that we're no longer acting selfishly, but acting for the good and the benefit of many people. This is where the Brahma Viharas come in, but we do that out of the nobility because we can see that if we can, in fact, clean the suffering out of our own mind, then we can give uh, a word or two here and there to help other people come out of their suffering also. So part of the nobility is, is that it can be spread. 
So you can, in fact, attain to this state of nobility through uh, eagerness. Eagerness is one of the primary ingredients. It's, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. But it is a necessary ingredient that we become quite eager for sati. We become eager to find out what the mind is doing. Rather than, oh, there it goes again. Okay, so that's the loser's mentality. But aha, I caught you. That's the winner. And so that eagerness that we're talking about actually is the ingredient that is needed that changes us from being a victim into being a winner. Is eager. We become eager to see what's going on because we know we can do it. We've got the confidence that we can catch that stuff. And so this is my job. I'm, I'm here not as a coach. I'm more like a cheerleader to get you enthusiastic, to get your uh, eagerness up for practice. If you can get your eagerness up, then uh, the intention... To, uh, to become mindful more and more uh, will help develop that skill. And so we practice uh, in the beginning uh, because we think we're going to get something out of it. But very quickly, we begin to change that from practicing to get benefit into practicing because we enjoy the benefit right then and there. That that's how we learn to practice. So change your meditation from some, something that's good for you into something you really like. Because, why? This is not the same as wanting something that you don't have. But rather it's something that you do have. It's something that you do have, because we can change our attitude. We can feel good. We can have wholesome thoughts. We can get excited and eager for the practice. Oh, what a nice moment this is. And so we start to have those wholesome thoughts to tell ourselves that we can do this, that this is nice. And practice over and over again those wholesome thoughts, those wholesome thoughts, so that we can get ourselves into a state of sukha. And we'll talk about sukha later. I'm introducing things a little bit slow for you, but um, we, we want to to look at the fact of how can we get ourselves into a really good state? We can do that. We can basically talk ourselves into a good state. So whenever thoughts that come that take us out of that good state, we can catch those and throw them out and come back into a nice good state. A state of mind that's easygoing, comfortable, happy, no worries, no problems. And so now when we investigate, we can investigate and say, yeah, I, I feel that mosquito bite. I don't like it, but no worries, not a problem. <laughs> It only is there when I look at it. When I'm not looking at it, it's not there. And so we can, in fact, form our intention to move away from the dukkha. But we've got to see it first. If we see dukkha as dukkha, then we can avoid it. 
that's the problem is that we have to be able to see dukkha as dukkha that's that first noble truth and it always happens in the present moment so someone in fact can take an exam and say what is the definition of dukkha and somebody can write it old age sickness death um um uh, uh, lamentation grief despair and just write it all down right know it exactly but if we cannot experience it, that dukkha in the present moment, if we cannot see the tiredness, if we cannot see the desire, if we cannot see the wantings, then uh, it doesn't matter if we have the correct definition intellectually or not. We actually have to be seeing that suffering. We can see it. And it sometimes is very quick. In the, in the sense of... Um, Somebody says something nasty to you, and we want to respond. Let us say it's on on Reddit or on an email, and somebody uh, says something nasty. So that's where it's all at, okay? And so we say, I don't like that, and so we turn the computer off or we walk away, but then we still think about that nasty email or that nasty Reddit uh, or that nasty tweet. And so now we kind of think of, I've got to answer him. I've got to answer that. I've got to take up for myself. I've got to uh, uh, win, the, win the moment back or whatever like this. And the answer is, while I'm actually thinking about my formulation of answering that guy who's insulted me, I'm in suffering. I'm in dukkha. And so every time I think about writing that response, the answer is, out it goes. But in fact, it probably doesn't need a response. Because it's all going to be just tit for tat and tit for tat and everybody's feeling bad. Mm -hmm. Best thing to do is out. Get it out. Don't think about it. Don't try to answer the person. But rather, every time that that thought will come up, we can say, I don't need to answer that email right now. I don't need to answer that Reddit. I don't need to think about it at all. I can sit here and feel just fine and comfortable without that thought. Many people say, oh, that's so hard. Well, no, it's not once you recognize that that's a painful thought or that's actually suffering. Because most people say that if I answer him, then I'll feel better. I'll get satisfaction by answering that email, right? That's mm -hmm. what we normally tell ourselves. Yeah. Well, that satisfaction you can have without answering the email. But if you do answer the email, it may, in fact, cause more trouble. <laughs> and it may not be over. Eventually, somebody's going to have to have the thought, this is not worth the effort. This, is, this really is Dukkha. And so the sooner we can see that that email exchange is suffering, then we can cut it off in the mind. Every time I think about writing that email, I say, nope, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to continue that thread. Everybody will have this. Everybody has uh, because of the way that we live or... Um, Anytime that someone does something that we don't like, that's an opportunity for to recognize, I don't like that. That's my suffering. But here comes First Noble Truth again, all dressed up. 
All dressed up. And here I am making it bigger and bigger. But if I can recognize that, then I can throw that thought out and say, wow, it feels so good to not have to worry about answering those emails. So when I use the word email, I'm actually using that as a metaphor because it can be done for not only anything on the internet, but also the way that we deal with people. Because oftentimes the right thing to do, especially if we get angry, is to be quiet. Don't let it out. We'll talk more about that later. But right now, we're getting you into the, the framework of thinking about the Four Noble Truths in this present moment that this is suffering, or this is not suffering, or look at the cause of why I'm suffering, or look at the Eightfold Noble Path and start thinking about, ah, oh, this is sati, let's develop that, oh, this is right effort, okay, this is investigation, this is really paying attention to what's going on, and, and this is uh, gladdening the mind, okay, so we begin to have an investigation, and that investigation is wrapped very tightly around the Four Noble Truths in operation in this present moment. And so we practice that more and more. It's good to practice that alone in seclusion, but we're not going to stay in seclusion. That We have to go out and perform our lives. And so we're out there in a, in a form of, of practicing. But in fact, a performance is nothing but practice under pressure. Nothing but practice under pressure. When we, so we want to take the pressure off for the beginning uh, practice so that we can get it down. But if you really, really want to know how to play a particular song, do it in front of a thousand people. <laughs> <laughs> and you as a musician, you know what I'm talking about. That that's where the pressure comes is when you're in, in front of an audience, okay? Well, you've got an audience out there. And so you can feel that kind of pressure. I've got to be here now. I've got to make sure that whatever's happening out there is not going to affect me on the inside, to be on guard. And so practicing uh, sati or practicing meditation while we're walking around, hang on a second. This is a good moment. This is good doing the right thing. Lucky? Okay, enough to stop. Lucky, okay. Come on, Lucky. They're, right, they're walking right into the yard. I don't know who she is. Pam's going to have to go out there to see. <laughs> That's good dhamma, by the way, is to watching what's going on. Because it's actually a way of seeing things in, in slow motion. But we do that in the in our mind, is, is that we'll see something we don't know and we don't like and we start barking. And while we're barking, we're not paying attention to what's going on. 
You need to start looking at it. So, do you have any questions about what we've been talking about today? Because I think that we've pretty well gotten to a, a, an easy point of recognizing that this is all about the Four Noble Truths in this present moment. Because one final thing about that, and that is that there is a promise that is in that sutta, in that, in that phrase, and that is, is that when one is aware and, uh, um, let us say, uh, being attentive to the Four Noble Truths, and the way that it's stated, actually, this is suffering. This is the cause of suffering. This is freedom from suffering. And this is the past. So we're talking about, we do it in the present moment, looking at each one of these things. There is a promise. And that promise is that this is the eradication of the first three fetters, which we'll talk about. The first fetter is the fetter of personality view. In other words, we begin to disassociate ourselves, and so we no longer see, I am angry. Instead, we see, there is anger. The next one is, uh, the second fetter is Sila Bhatta Paramasa. Sila Bhatta Paramasa means attachments to rights, rules, and rituals. We begin to see now that we've got one new rule. And that one new rule is the only rule that we need in our whole life. What is that rule? Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. If we're actually able to see Dukkha and Dukkha Naroda correctly, then we don't need any more rules. We don't need any more. We know how to operate because that's, that's the noble way of operating is, is in, in that one regard. We don't need all of the other rules. That's the second setter. And in fact, what rules do we not need the most? The rules that we learned from the parents and the teachers before we were five and six years old. Because that's who we learned to feel bad from. All of those old rules. Now we're going to do it through wisdom. We're going to watch what's going on rather than doing it like we were told to do. The third better is doubt. There are three kinds of doubt. The first doubt is, who can I get to fix my mess? Who made this mess? Because when we were kids, we had a mommy to fix our mess. And so as we grow up, we look for other authority figures. What authority figures do we find? We find teachers, we find doctors, we find accountants, we find car mechanics, we find all kinds of people to do the things that we can't do for ourselves. Well, that's good for accountants and lawyers and legal things on the outside world, but who are we going to get to fix the stuff on the inside? Because we think that we can go to psychologists and gurus and doctors and um, uh, uh, even Jesus. And taking Jesus on as a savior, and he's going to fix the mess on the inside. But the second noble truth proves that wrong. Because the source of suffering does not come from the outside. So the psychologist can't fix the inside. Nobody can do that. So our first layer of doubt is, I've got to fix my own problem. Ain't going to nobody else going to help me on the outside. 
And yet you see so many people reading so many Dharma books. They're looking for it. They're looking, they're looking. They're wanting the help from the outside. They don't recognize, no, the real job is right here on the inside. To be here with the Four Noble Truths in this present moment, that's the way out of it. And that brings up the second doubt. And that is, can I do it? Am I up to the task of cleaning out my own mind? That's where right attitude comes in. That's why we need to practice over and over and over again to get the success. Any viola player, whether she's coming out to play in an orchestra or going to have a solo performance on the stage, when she's walking out on that stage, she'll either have the attitude, I can play this piece of music, or she'll have the attitude, I'm going to screw this up, because I don't know what I'm doing. Okay? You know that. You've had that kind of mentality walking out on the stage. You know what I'm talking about, all right? I, I this definitely is know. the attitude. <laughs> you definitely know. <laughs> <laughs> and the answer is the right attitude. Because, in fact, the attitude is, if the right attitude is, I can do this, then th that's more important than the actual performance, even if a, a few notes are left up. But the attitude is correct, and those muffed-up notes are okay. They're just part of the performance. But if the attitude is, I can't do this, this is hard, then even if it's just the same few notes that are muffed up, now I feel terrible for the rest of the week because I messed up those three notes because of the attitude. Mm -hmm. So the attitude the attitude of the winner. That's the second kind of doubt. The third kind of doubt is the doubt of, do I have the tools needed? An example of that is the very, very excellent violin or viola player uh, is, is getting ready for an audition that's happening two or three months later, but he's unsecure. But then someone who really is watching this kid and knows what's going on puts him in contact with a dealer whose who's, uh, uh, hobby is to collect the very best violas and the very best violins from history. I don't know about Stradivarius violas, but you know exactly what I'm talking about with the Stradivarius and there's others. Okay, and so now you give that kind of violin or that kind of viola to this young musician. And now he's got it. Okay, because he, he's got that master's violin. And he's got the technique and the tools to do it, to learn to play that violin. And so for the next three months, he's breaking himself into that old violin. That violin may be 300 years old. But it's world class. It's got a certain kind of sound to it. Okay? So that's the third doubt. And that third doubt is, do you have the right tools to clean out the mind? Do you have the right shovel? Yes, we've got the Four Noble Truths. That's the shovel we're going to use to clean out the mind every time, every moment, moment by moment, the cleaning out is done with the right tools.
and we know that we've got the right tools. This is the right tool. That's when the full um, package comes together to where that's what really builds the eagerness. Because we know nobody's going to do it for us. We know that we can do it, and we know that we've got the tools to do it. We've been practicing, and we know that we can do this because we've got the right tools. Okay, so these are three levels of the eradication of the doubt, and when that doubt is um, uh, eliminated, that's like a an enormous freedom. You see, before that kid, even as good a violin player as he was, before he had a really good axe, he was still doubtful. But now that he's got the right piece of equipment to put with his talent, now he's got it. And he can walk into that audition with every confidence that he's going to get that first chair position in that orchestra. Okay. So this is the way that we look at it. This is why we keep practicing this over and over and over again. So developing this skill of sati, developing this skill of right effort, developing the skill of right attitude, and develop the skill of investigation. That's one's right view. Right view is to look, to investigate, to keep looking, to keep noticing. And how do we keep noticing? Because we remember to keep noticing. So sati and right effort and a right view run and circle around each other. They work together like that. And then you add that fourth ingredient of right attitude, and now you've got the winning formula. And so this is the way that we practice. In the here now. To see the dukkha. So if there is dukkha in this present moment, more than likely it's dukkha that has been covered uh, by the past. Dukkha in this present moment is only this present moment is, is generally um, not dukkha. Generally not. But what's happening in this present moment, if I don't like it, then that's dukkha. <laughs> and so, um, do you have any questions now? Um, let's see. For reading the suttas, some of the translations are quite different, and I'm just not sure which translations to go to so what are your thoughts on that um okay i tend to like bodhi bhikkhu bodhi's most early uh translations okay uh I, and the book that i spend the most time with is the majjhima nikaya and i do have bhikkhu bodhi's version bhikkhu bodhi actually was the editor of that not the translator that ninamali was the actual translator but he died before it was published and so bodhi took it over 
The reason that I like that one is because it is eloquent. It is beautifully written. To where Tenisaro is much more into being exactly accurate. Okay. The older the translations, the worse they are, though, in the sense of going back to the Polytech Society's translations with uh, uh, Ivy Honer and Riles Davies and his wife. They're, those were the three people who did primarily most of the original translations, and they also did uh, the lexicons. But unfortunately, none of them were Buddhists. They were all Christian scholars um, uh, with ancient languages, and so that was their interest. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, the lexicons don't lend themselves well to, uh, because everybody now is using the same polydictionaries that were started. And so um, doing the original research was done by, the, by, by Christians. So we have... Uh, left an English language version of of the of, of the Pali and Buddhism that is heavily influenced by a language of Christianity. Monk, nun, monastery, temple, meditation, concentration, um, suffering—all of these are Christian words. Dukkha is not suffering. Dukkha is unpleasantness. Mm -hmm. But the Christians are really into suffering. I mean, they kneel people up. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, and so a lot of the language is Christianese. And we have to move <laughs> beyond that yeah. to understand that. Uh, um, but sometimes a lot of words are best just left completely untranslated. Let them go into the English language completely untranslated. And a lot of the Pali words should be left that way. Then, in fact, that's exactly what's happened to the Thai language. That there people, let us say, occasionally someone will both learn the Thai language and also learn Pali and recognize, just like the, the Thai people who know Pali, that a lot of the Thai language vocabulary is, in fact, Pali. That Thailand has been Buddhist long enough that wor common words have come into usage from the Pali, which is quite amusing. But, um, and, and in fact, uh, the word pair that's really useful for using that way is the word dukkha and sukha in Pali. Actually, in Thai language, is duke and suk, and they are actually opposites. In fact, Kwam Suk means the word happiness, or Suk means pleasant. But I had a student just this year say, oh, well, I was raised in Gujarat, and in the Gujarati language, there is Duki and Suki, and it has exactly the same meaning and the same definition. Okay, well, Gujarat is, in India, part of the Indo-European languages. So... Um, suffering is not a good definition because, in, and one of the reasons for that is because suffering doesn't have an actual opposite, doesn't have an antonym. It's either suffering or not suffering. Okay, so um, Dukkha Naroda 
is actually would be Dukkha Sukha. So the translations that I would say, first off, is huh, here's what I do. I use uh, Subato on Dhamma Central and then click the right thing so that I can bring up the poly line by line. So that if there's a word that I'm curious about, I can um, uh, hover over that poly word and bring up the dictionary. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it, that's the that's ultimately the right way to do it is which translation is the right translation to use any of them. Every one of them has its troubles. The biggest trouble of all is I don't know Su <laughs> I don't know uh, Polly that well. Yeah. I know it well enough to have done a chanting book, but not well enough to um, uh, to speak Polly. I don't think anyone on planet Earth right now can speak Polly. Just like in Latin, there's a few in the Catholic Church who actually skilled enough at, to be able to speak Latin. But that's a rare uh, skill nowadays. But it was dwindling down in the de in the Middle Ages. A whole lot more people could speak Latin then than they can now. Yeah. I don't know of anybody who can actually speak uh, Pali, but I do know that it was spoken at least uh, a thousand years after the time of the Buddha. Now, modern Bengali would be the parent language that they have for that area. But Bengali has sufficiently changed out of Magati that it's not the same language as it was. But I do have a student, a female student. Actually, she's a Ph.D. in England right now, and her hometown is in Calcutta, which means that she speaks Bengali. And so I spend a lot of time with her talking about the Pali because the Pali and the Bengali are, you know, the same language. It's like going to um, to Italy to speak Latin, or to go to modern Greece to speak ancient Greece. It's a whole lot closer. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, so that's the answer to your uh, to your questions. Is that um, none of the translations are correct, okay. and that's a problem. Yeah. Um, but that the suttas are better than anything else. But I would give you one possible exception would be my teacher, which is Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, because there's a lot of stuff on. Uh, all you have to do is find Google uh, Buddha Dasa, B U D D A H D A. Excuse me, B U D D H A D A S A, Buddha Dasa. And um, uh, that that will get you started. If you can get into the archives, there's the Buddha Dasa Itapanyo archives in Bangkok. They mostly do Thai language, but they also keep track of stuff in Chinese and in English for mm -hmm. Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. Okay. And there's dozens and dozens of books in English and hundreds and hundreds of books in Thai that have never been translated. Mm. But I am in the in that area that I can, in fact, influence some of the translators to do this one and do that one. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I uh, the two main translators that are still doing Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, uh, one of them is um, Robert, who lives here in Thailand, my good friend, and the other one is uh, Dhamma Vitu, and they're both doing translations of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. Dhamma Vitu is actually quite excellent. He's very, very good. Robert's still learning, but he's he's good job. So, uh, uh, paying attention to even the old stuff, like uh, from uh, the translators like Donald Square or um, um, Robert Bucknell, these are the old translators, and they're worthwhile, as well as Carl is the main translator. So there's a lot of... I would recommend the first book of this to be the end of time. Sorry, what was you that? You can actually Google Handbook to Mankind. Okay. Handbook to Mankind. If you can get that one, then you can probably find a lot of the other books that he has. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's the answer to that question, is go with this, and also uh, the right way to do the poly is by uh, finding a translation, which is they're, they're there, almost everything, not 100% of everything, but most of the stuff is there, that you can get to where a line of English and a line of poly, and a line of English and a line of poly, that way you you can really become a bit scholarly. You can go and figure out exactly what it was. That would be the way that I would recommend. That's actually the best way to learn poly, too, is only look up the words that you're curious about. Mm -hmm. Or you don't have to learn all the complex... uh, um, uh, declination uh, of the nouns of the conjugations of the verbs, which can be quite tedious to learn it that way. Instead, just hover over the poly and it'll give you a useful definition. Not 100%, but it's good enough to get started. But I do tend to like, I also know that there's a long-running conversation between uh, uh, Achan Tanisaro and Bhikkhu Bodhi over translations. That they are reading each other like this, (laughs) about how to translate. (laughs) Okay. And so there is some diversity, there is some disagreement. But by and large, almost everything by now has been translated in his own mind. 30 years ago, that was not the case. 40 years ago, no. In fact, Bhikkhu Bodhi didn't translate and publish. I think it was like 1995 when the Majjhima was published. And that was like the big turning stone. It was a big change because... Uh, before then, the only thing that was available was in Polytech Society, and generally they're set up to where you've got to buy the whole show. They don't sell easily individual books. Yeah. And so uh, we're lucky now. You have you have available 
And so Bhikkhu Dasa would be the author that I would say would be the modern author that you would want to watch for. Other than that, I would stay with the sutras. Majjhima Nikaya especially, and Guttara, and the Samyutta Nikaya, and sometimes the Kandana Nikaya. We'll talk about all of that later sometime. Okay. But, but remember the Majjhima Nikaya, because that's where I get most of my teaching from. Okay. Okay? Mm -hmm. Any other questions? Uh, yes, I have one more question. What's a good translation for Satipatthana? Pardon? Uh, what's a good translation for Satipatthana? The tra this common translation is foundations of mindfulness. Okay. okay. The word Sati, we've got that one nailed. Patana. The word patana is like a foundation or a footing, a cornerstone, or even a pedestal. You can see the word patana and pedestal. That's it. Okay? Or what is the ground floor of a human being? What's your base? Mm -hmm. Okay? Your base is you've got a body. Your base is you've got feelings, you've got a mind, and you've got mind objects. That's our basic foundation for practice. And Anapanasati is built, is built upon that foundation. Okay? Okay. All right. All righty, we'll see you later. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.